Hello there, and welcome to the finale of this second series of What You May Have Missed. I hope that you have enjoyed our exploits into legend over the past few weeks, I know I have, and that you are getting huddled up nice and warm, ready for winter. Last week, we started the tale of a man who James Joyce, the author of Ulysses, once described as the most complete man in literature. An honourable man, yet a trickster. Ingenious, yet sly. Highly intelligent, yet sometimes a bit slow. Odysseus. So far, Odysseus' journey home from Troy, after ten years of war, has taken him the best part of two years, and he and what is left of his crew has faced a huge number of problems. Many of the men nearly stayed in the land of the Lotus Eaters before they were dragged back to their ships. Polyphemus, the Cyclops, devoured several of them and called upon his father to curse Odysseus's voyage. More on that later. The Lestrigenes destroyed eleven of the twelve ships in his fleet, Circe had hosted Odysseus and his men in her palace for over a year, or rather, she had informally imprisoned them in her palace for a year. And our hero had entered the underworld and been given a warning from Tiresias regarding all the perils that potentially awaited Odysseus's passage home. Poseidon would attempt retribution for the blinding of his son. If Odysseus and his men caused harm to the flocks of the sun god Helios, then they all but Odysseus would die, and when he returned home, finally, there would be many suitors living off the food and wealth in his own palace, whom he would have to dispatch. So it hadn't been plain sailing thus far, and it didn't look as though things would get easier for the wily king of Ithaca. What Odysseus didn't realise was that there were some things the blind seer had not warned him of. So, hold on to your seats, and pray you don't get seasick because this voyage is about to get even bumpier. The Sirens Odysseus and his crew left the place where one could enter the underworld and set sail in what they hoped was the direction of home. What they hadn't reckoned with was that their course led them past the island of the Sirens. Circe had warned Odysseus not to listen to the seductive melodies of these perfidious nymphs on any count. All who listened to their enticing voices felt an unassailable desire to leap overboard and join them, where they perished either at their hands or were engulfed by the waves. In order for the crew to not hear the song of the sirens, Odysseus ordered them to fill their ears with melted wax. Ouch. But our hero decided that as he so dearly loved adventure, he could not possibly pass up the opportunity to brave this new and enticing danger. He ordered his men to lash him to the mast and gave them very strict instructions that he should not be released 
until they were well out of sight of the Siren's Island, no matter how much he might implore them to set him free. As they passed the shore, they saw the Sirens seated side by side on the green slopes of their island, and as their sweet and enthralling voices fell upon his ears, he became so powerfully affected by them that, forgetting all of the danger they held, he pleaded with his comrades to release him. But the sailors were obedient to their orders and refused to free him until the beautifully terrible island had disappeared over the horizon. When the danger was past, Odysseus's senses returned to him and he thanked his crew because their compliance had saved his life. The Island of Helios After their close encounter with the Sirens, the crew and their leader were mightily keen to get home. But now they came towards a narrow strait where dwelt two terrible monsters of the sea, Scylla and Charybdis, between whom Circe had desired them to pass. A quick side note. It is from here that the phrase to be between Scylla and Charybdis originates. You may not use that particular wording, but you definitely know the phrase. Most of the time we say to be between a rock and a hard place. As Odysseus steered the vessel beneath the great rock, Scylla swooped down and seized six of his crew from the deck, and the cries of the men rang in his ears for a long time afterwards. Charybdis created a vortex in the water so deep that the floor of the sea could be glimpsed. Odysseus called on his men to row as hard as they possibly could, and they passed between the two beasts without any more men falling to them. Eventually, after much arduous rowing, they reached the island of Thrinacea, modern-day Sicily, the place that the sun god pastured his flocks and herds, and Odysseus, remembering the warning of Tiresias to avoid this sacred island, would very much like to have steered past it and left the country unexplored. However, his crew had started to become mutinous and insisted on landing. Odysseus was therefore obliged to land, but before allowing them to set foot on shore, he made them take an oath not to touch the sacred herds of Helios and to be ready to sail again on the following morning. Unfortunately, the horribleness of the weather forced them to stay a whole month at Thrinitia, and the store of wine and food given to them by Circe was completely exhausted, so they had to survive on what fish and birds the island offered. But there was not food sufficient enough to satisfy their hunger, and one evening when Odysseus, worn out with anxiety and fatigue, had fallen asleep, Eurylochus persuaded the hungry men to break their vows and kill some of the sacred cows. So terrible was the anger of Helios, he made the hides of the slaughtered animals creep and the joints on the spits to bellow like living cattle. Then he went before Zeus. Father Zeus, and you all the blessed gods who live forever, take vengeance on the followers of Odysseus, son of Laertes. They have criminally killed my cattle, the cattle that gave me such joy every day as I climbed the starry sky and as I dropped down from heaven and sank once more to earth. If they do not repay me in full for my slaughtered cows, I will go down to the realm of Hades and shine among the dead. Zeus replied, Son, 
Shine on for the immortals and for mortal men on the fruitful earth. As for the culprits, I will soon strike their ship with a blinding bolt out on the wine-dark sea and smash it to pieces. The sun-god did as instructed by the lord of Olympus, trusting Zeus to keep his promise. After feasting for a week, Odysseus and his companions once again set sail, but the ruler of Olympus caused a terrible storm to attack them, and the ship, the last ship of Odysseus's original twelve, was struck by lightning and blasted to pieces. Every single member of the crew drowned, save Odysseus, who clung desperately to a mast and was left floating in the open sea for nine days. After a time, he realised the wind was blowing him back towards Scylla and Charybdis. Charybdis caused the great whirlpool again, but Odysseus used a fig tree that overhang the strait to hold himself above the beast and watch as the mast was swallowed. A long while later, after Charybdis had abated its whirling, the mast reappeared and Odysseus deemed it safe enough to drop quietly back into the water and drift once more into the sea until he was eventually cast ashore on the island of Ogygia. Calypso Ogygia was an island covered with dense forests, and in the midst of a grove of cypress and poplar stood the charming palace of the nymph Calypso, daughter of the titan, Atlas. The entrance to the grotto was entwined with leafy vine branches from which hung clusters of purple and golden grapes. Splashing fountains gave a delicious sense of coolness to the air, which was filled with the songs of birds, and the ground was carpeted with violets and mosses. Calypso welcomed the weary shipwrecked hero and aided him in recovering from his last week at sea. The more time Odysseus spent in the company of Calypso, the more she became attached to him. And indeed, quite quickly, she fell head over heels in love with him. She offered him immortality and eternal youth if he would consent to remain with her forever, but the heart of Odysseus turned yearningly towards his beloved wife Penelope and his son Telemachus. He therefore politely refused her offer. He earnestly pleaded the gods to permit him return to his home, but the curse of Poseidon still followed and so for seven long years he was detained on the island by Calypso. This is, once again, where the gods come into play. Athena, who had been looking out for Odysseus, went to the mighty Zeus and requested that he allow Odysseus to return home. After all, he had now been away from home for seventeen years. Look at Odysseus, that admirable king, Athena said. Today... Not one of the people he once ruled like a loving father gives him a single thought. He's left a languishing misery in the island home of Calypso. Not that he could reach Ithaca in any case, for he has neither ships fitted with oars nor crew to carry him across the sea. Let him return home. Zeus looked down at the wretched figure of Odysseus, and his heart softened. That very rarely happened. So be it. He replied, Hermes, as you are our usual messenger, convey our final decision to Calypso. 
the long-enduring Odysseus must now set out for home. He shall set out on a raft put together by his own hands, and on the twentieth day, after great hardship, reach Skerry, the rich country of the Phaeacians, who are close to the gods. They will take him to their heart and treat him like a god. They will convey him by ship to his own land, giving him bronze, gold, and woven materials in such quantities as he could never have won for himself from Troy, even if he had come away with his fair share of the spoil. This is how it is ordained that he shall see his friends and come to his high-roofed house and his native land once more. You might remember that this is also how Tiresias had prophesied how Odysseus would return home. Calypso, though loath to part with her guest, dared not disobey the commands of the mighty Zeus. She therefore instructed the hero to construct a raft, for which she herself wove the sails, and after seven years Odysseus bade her farewell, and alone and unaided embarked on the tiny boat for home. Nausicaa For seventeen days Odysseus sailed the raft in accordance with the directions Calypso gave him, as well as using the stars as a guide. On the eighteenth day he finally caught sight of the distant outline of the Phaeacian coast and began to look forward to a warm bed, some food and shelter. But Poseidon, still enraged with the hero who had blinded and insulted his son, caused an awful tempest to arise, during which the raft was swamped by the waves, and Odysseus only saved himself by clinging for bare life to a single plank of the wreck. For two days and nights he floated about, drifting this way and that by the billows, until at last he was cast ashore on the coast of Scaria, the island of the luxurious Phaeacians. Worn out from the trials and tribulations of the last few days, he crept into a thicket for some cover, laid down on a bed of dried leaves, and was soon fast asleep. It just so happened that Nausicaa, the beautiful daughter of King Alcinous and his queen Arete, had come down to the shore, accompanied by her ladies, to wash the linen which was to be part of her dowry. When they had finished their washing, they bathed and sat down, and amused themselves with singing and playing with a ball. It was to their joyous shouts and laughs that Odysseus woke. He left his secluded shrubbery to find himself in the midst of the happy group. The ladies were alarmed at his haggard appearance, so much so that Nausicaa's attendants fled in terror. But the princess, pitying the forlorn stranger, addressed him with kind and sympathetic words. After hearing from him the account of his shipwreck and the terrible hardship he had undergone, Nausicaa called back her attendants, told them off for their lack of courtesy, and ordered them to supply the wanderer with food, drink, and suitable clothing. Odysseus then left the maidens to resume their game whilst he bathed and clothed himself with the garments with which they had furnished him. Athena now appeared before Odysseus and made him appear taller and sturdier than before. She also caused his hair to grow long and luscious. And finally, she endowed his face with the handsomest of features, so when he reappeared, the young princess was struck with admiration and requested the hero to visit the palace of her father. 
Odysseus was very kindly received by the king and queen, who entertained him with magnificent hospitality. And in return for their kindness, our hero related to them the history of his long and eventful voyage, and the many extraordinary adventures and miraculous escapes which had befallen him since his departure from Troy. When he at last took leave of his royal entertainers, Alcinous presented him with many rich gifts, and ordered him to be taken to Ithaca at once in one of his own ships. Odysseus was finally returning home. Arrival in Ithaca For a rather pleasant change, the voyage was short and successful. By order of King Alcinous, rich furs had been laid on the deck for the comfort of Odysseus, on which the hero, leaving the guidance of the ship to the Phaeacian soldiers, soon fell into a deep sleep. He has a habit of doing this when he's nearly home. The following morning, when the vessel arrived in the harbour of Ithaca, the sailors, concluding that so deep was Odysseus's sleep that it must have been gifted to him by the gods, carried him very gently onto the shore without disturbing him and quietly placed him beneath the cool shade of an olive tree. When Odysseus eventually woke, he had no idea where he was. Unbeknownst to him, Athena had enveloped him in a thick cloud so as to obscure him from view so he could sleep on in peace. Now, though, she appeared to him in the disguise of a shepherd and informed him that he was in Ithaca, his home. When Odysseus heard that he was back in his homeland after twenty incredibly forsaken years, he wept and threw himself on the ground, kissing the earth. From the disguised Athena, Odysseus learned not only that his father had withdrawn from the court in mourning for the apparent loss of his son, but also that Telemachus, Odysseus's own son, had grown into a man and set off to find word of his father. The worst news of all came last, though. His dear wife, Penelope, had been harassed by the demands of numerous suitors who had taken possession of his home and devoured his food and wine. In order to gain time over them, Penelope had promised to marry one of the suitors as soon as she had finished weaving a robe for the aged Laertes, Odysseus's father. During the day she wove, but at night she undid all of the previous day's work and had thus never finished the robe. At the same time that Odysseus had arrived back in Ithaca, the multitude of suitors realised what she had been doing and had started to become more and more rowdy. The goddess now revealed her identity to Odysseus and helped him hide all his gifts from the Phaeacians in a nearby cave. Then she sat herself on the ground beside the still weeping king, and together they plotted a way to rid his house and wife of the rascals that had caused so much trouble. And this is what they did. To prevent him being recognised, she used her divine power to give him the appearance of an aged vagrant. His limbs became rickety, his brown locks disappeared, his eyes grew dim and blurred, and the regal robes given to him by King Alcinous were replaced by a tattered shawl which hung loosely round his shrunken frame. Athena then told him to seek shelter in the house of Eumaeus, his own swineherd. Eumaeus took in who he assumed to be an old beggar 
and kindly took care to his wants and even confided to him his sorrow at the long-continued absence of his beloved old master and his sadness at being told to slaughter the finest and fattest of the herd by the unruly invaders of his house to use in feasts. Now, it so happened that the following morning, Telemachus, Odysseus's son, had returned to Ithaca from his long and arduous search for his father. The first place he visited was not his mother in the palace, but Eumaeus, whom he had befriended whilst growing up. Now Athena encouraged Odysseus to make himself known to Telemachus. She touched the beggar-like man, and the rags and the feeble body disappeared to be replaced with royal robes and a full-strength Odysseus. So imposing was the appearance of the hero that at first the young prince thought he must be a god. But when he realised that it was indeed his father, whose prolonged absence had caused him so much grief, he fell upon his neck and embraced him. Odysseus then told Telemachus to keep his return a secret and determined with him a plan whereby they could rid themselves of the detested suitors. For this plan to work, said Odysseus, I need you to get your mother to do something. She needs to promise that she will give her hand in marriage to the man who can shoot an arrow from my bow through the handles of twelve axes. I left it behind when I went to try. It was far too precious to take to war. Can you do that for me? It's a bit of an odd request, but yeah, I think I can. Then Odysseus, with Athena's help, returned to his beggar's clothes and appearance and accompanied his son to the palace, before the door of which lay his faithful old dog, Argo, who, though worn and feeble with age and neglect, instantly recognised his master. Such is the way with dogs. In his delight, though, the poor animal made a last effort to welcome him, but being so old, his strength was exhausted, and he passed away at his feet. When the beggar Odysseus entered what were his halls, he was mocked and laughed at by the riotous suitors, and Antinous, the most deplorable of them all, ridiculed his filthy appearance and insolently shouted at him to leave. But Penelope, who was a loving and very kind woman, hearing of their cruel behaviour, was touched with compassion and asked her maidens to bring the poor fellow before her. She spoke kindly to him, asking who he was and from whence he had come. He told her that he was the brother of the king of Crete, in whose palace he had seen Odysseus, who was about to set sail for Ithaca, and had declared his intention of arriving there before the year was out. The queen, overjoyed at the happy tidings, ordered her maidens to prepare a bed for the stranger and to treat him as an honoured guest. She then asked the old nurse, Eurycleia, to provide him with clothing and to attend to all his needs. As the old servant was bathing his feet, her eyes fell upon a scar which Odysseus had received as a boy from the tusks of a wild boar. No, she thought, it couldn't be. She looked up and saw her beloved master, whom she had nursed as a babe, smiling down at him. Had Odysseus not placed his hands over her mouth, she would have cried out for joy. He didn't say anything, but just let her gape at him whilst she finished cleaning his feet. What could he have planned? 
Telemachus, meanwhile, had done as his father had asked and suggested to Penelope that only the man who could fire an arrow from Odysseus's bow through the rings of twelve axes she would marry. Why twelve axes, you ask? Well, it was simple. This was a party trick of Odysseus's and one that Penelope had seen him alone perform. The next day was a festival of Apollo, and the suitors in their honour of the occasion feasted with more than their accustomed revelry. After the banquet was over, Penelope took down the great bow of Odysseus from its place above the fire and entered the hall. Whosoever can fire an arrow from my lord Odysseus's bow through the rings on these twelve axes, I shall marry. But be warned, the last person to even string the bow was Odysseus himself, so mighty a warrior he was. Telemachus was the first to attempt to string the bow, not because he wanted to marry his own mother, but rather to prove her point. If the son of Odysseus could not string the bow, who else would even stand a chance? One by one, all the suitors tried to string the bow, but it was all in vain. Not one of them possessed the strength required to string the weapon, let alone draw it. And now, Odysseus, still disguised as the beggar, but a bit cleaner, stepped forward. Your grace, he called out. Might I try? The hall erupted in laughter. The beggar-man had some audacity if he thought he, out of all of them, could fire the bow. Of course you may, said Penelope. She did not expect this old beggar to be able to string or pull the bow, but, as I have already said, she was a very kind woman. Odysseus picked up the bow and examined it closely. Ha! Antinous laughed. Quite the expert with a critic's eye for bows. No doubt he collects them at home or wants to make one, judging by the way he twists it about. The old vagabond's up to no good. <laughs> all the men laughed. By now they were all riotously drunk, and they did not perceive Telemachus and a few hand-chosen soldiers relieving the revellers of all their weapons. Odysseus, ignoring the laughter and jeers from the suitors, examined his bow carefully. He knew this bow, had used it many times, both at parties and hunting. As skilfully as a musician plays their instrument, Odysseus stretched the string over either ends of the bow. The watchful crowd stopped their laughing at once. This old beggar had strung the bow with no more difficulty than if he were eating a meal. From the quiver he drew an arrow and knocked it to the string, and in one great pull he drew back the arrow, took aim through the very centre of the axe rings, and fired. As the arrow left the bow, there was an almighty thunderclap from Zeus, and Odysseus's heart was uplifted with joy at this sign of favour from the Lord of Thunder. Everyone's eyes were drawn to the arrow that sailed right through all twelve rings of the axe before thudding solidly into the wall beyond. Then there was the briefest moment of silence when everyone realised what it must mean. But before anyone could say or do anything, Odysseus had already drawn back the bow and fired an arrow straight through the chest of the arrogant and conceited Antinous. All the suitors panicked and reached for their weapons, but they were nowhere to be seen. 
Telemachus and his father now attacked the riotous revellers, and after a very quick time, not one of them was still standing. Despite the joyful appearance of Odysseus, Penelope refused to recognise, in the aged beggar, her gallant husband. So he retired to the bath, and he emerged in all the strength and beauty with which Athena had endowed him at the court of Alcinous. But Penelope, still incredulous, decided to put him to a test. She therefore commanded, in his hearing, that his own bed should be brought from his chamber. The foot of this bed had been made by Odysseus himself out of the stem of an olive tree which was still rooted in the ground, and round it he had built the walls of the bedroom. Knowing, therefore, that the bed could not be moved, he cried out that it was useless, for no mere mortal could move it from its place. Then Penelope knew that it must be Odysseus himself who stood before her, and at last they were reunited. The following day Odysseus set out to seek his old father Laertes, whom he found on one of his estates in the country, engaged in digging up a young olive tree. The poor old man, who was dressed in the humble garb of a labourer, bore the traces of deep grief on his furrowed face, and so shocked was his son at the change in his appearance that for a moment he turned aside to conceal his tears. When Odysseus revealed himself to his father as the son whom he had so long mourned as lost, the joy of the poor old man was almost greater than he could bear. With loving care Odysseus led him into the house where at length for the first time since the departure of his son, Laertes once more resumed his regal robes and piously thanked the gods for this great and unexpected happiness. But not yet was the hero permitted to enjoy his well-earned repose, for the friends and relatives of the suitors now rose in rebellion against him and pursued him to the abode of his father. But the fight was a short one. After a brief contest, Negotiations of a peaceful nature were entered into between Odysseus and his subjects. Recognising the justice of his cause, they became reconciled to their chief, who for many years continued to reign over them greatly and justly, just as Tiresias had prophesied. Well, there we go. A roller coaster of a ride for poor Odysseus, and especially for his poor comrades in arms who never made it home. I hope you enjoyed that tale of heroic exploits and adventure. It's definitely one of my favourites. And with that, we've reached the end of the second series of this show. But fear not, I will be back with more around the middle of next year. I hope you've enjoyed this series. It's not going anywhere, so you can always go back and listen to your favourites. Let me know what they are. If you've got any questions about anything that's appeared in any of the previous episodes, you can get in touch with me either by email at themythspodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter on at mythedpodcast, Instagram at whatyoumayhavemythed, or TikTok at whatyoumayhavemythed. And if you're feeling really generous, then you could buy me a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash the Myths Podcast, which would be really very kind of you. For now, though, I bid you a very fond farewell, and I will see you next year for Series 3 
of what you may have missed.